Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to Your word that You, by Your Spirit, would, would illumine our minds to understand your word, and Father, we pray that we would receive it like little children, that we would be excited to hear your word preached, and that we would not be those who hear it and forget it, but those who hear it and do it. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So last Lord's Day, I spent time reminding us of the ups and downs, the works of the Spirit and the works of the devil in which the Apostle Peter was engaged. He was a double-minded man, yet he knew full well that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who had words of eternal life, and he looked to Jesus. He was a man called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he spent his, the balance of his life following Christ, preaching Christ, and then dying like Christ, taking up his cross. We move on from the, that first line of this letter to think about who it is he's writing to and this Trinitarian greeting that he gives to them. It's a very rich greeting. So we read that Peter was writing to, it says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Given that he says that these people are, are, are chosen and that he is writing to them as part of the church, their first identity is that of Christians. He's writing to Christians. Okay? He's writing to people who have believed in Jesus Christ And those who, as Jesus says, did not choose him, but whom he chose, right? Additionally, these are people who have suffered some kind of persecution that has made them live as aliens, strangers in a country in which they were not born. They are living in exile from their home because of their faith. They're scattered among the regions of Asia Minor which is the present-day uh, country of Turkey. There's, that's where these, these cities that are mentioned are set. Particularly, these regions were in the northeastern part of Asia Minor along the coast of the Black Sea. So the northern part of Turkey up toward the water, um, water line of the Black Sea. The word he uses to describe them, aliens or your translation, if you're looking at a different one, may say exiles, was a common word used to describe the dispersion of the Jews after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles that we read about in the histories of the Old Testament. 
So is Peter only addressing ethnic Jews who had become Christians and subsequently were scattered um, from Israel when persecutions arose? We might be led to think so because Peter was, after all, the apostle sent to the circumcised. He was sent particularly to minister to the Jews. And we learn that when Paul is discussing it in the second chapter of Galatians. He mentions that he went to the Gentiles and Peter went to the the circumcised, to the Jews. But there are passages in in this first letter of, of Peter that address Gentiles, like the following, for the time already passes sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, and so on. It could still be, though, that the Apostle Peter is describing the sins of the Jews by comparing them with the desires of the Gentiles, even in that passage, and that he's writing, therefore, only to Jewish converts to Christianity who, again, because of persecution, past or present, have left Israel. But remember that when the Apostle Paul went on his missionary journeys uh, through much of modern day Greece and beyond, he first went into synagogues to preach the gospel. So there were Jews scattered everywhere about the world um, because of the of previous persecution against them. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 16, um, we learn that the apostle Paul was forbidden to go to this particular region in Asia Minor in the northwest corner um, where, Paul, where Peter is now writing this letter to. Uh, the Holy Spirit kept the Apostle Paul from going there. Someone other than the Apostle Paul apparently preached the gospel there. But we have to remember that Scripture describes all Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles, as strangers and aliens in the world. Right? As chosen ones, the world is not the home of Christians. As Hebrews eleven thirteen reminds us, all that to say, I don't think it's necessary to limit the recipients of Peter's letter to Jewish converts who are in exile. What is important to understand is that Peter is writing to Christians in the northern part of Asia Minor, an insignificant place in the Roman Empire, who are suffering because of their faith. That's what's important for us to understand. How do we know they are being persecuted? Because of what comes up in the letter. It's repeatedly stated in this you, in in the verses, just a a few verses down, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Right? And then 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated... You endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then 1 Peter 3 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. And then 1 Peter 4, it's almost in every chapter of this letter. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And then 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share 
the sufferings of Christ keep rejoicing so that you also, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And on he goes. So we know that these Christians and, and all Christians throughout history have been rejected by the world. And yet, rejected by the world means to be chosen by God. Right? So many would prefer to be accepted by the world and rejected by God, right? Accepted by the world has immediate benefits, so to speak. But you have to wait in many respects for the benefits that God gives to you. We spend our lives, and, and this, is, this is a word that I want to use for you who are younger. We spend our lives trying to be cool. Trying to be cool, right? But coolness, what is coolness? Coolness is merely desire to be accepted by the world. That's all coolness is. You want to be accepted by the world, and coolness, therefore, constantly changes. What may have been cool five minutes ago, right now might not be cool. What was cool in the middle of the 80s, somehow is cool again, which I don't really understand. So just look at popular fashion. You'll see how quickly that coolness changes. You see how it's things that you have or put on, or it's even an attitude that you might have and, or a, a, a type of character that you portray, Right? And it changes from time to time. Apparently, it's cool to be effeminate now as a millennial. It's cool to be weak in that sinful sense. It's a lesson we, we have to learn, and we have to get our children to understand. James says it explicitly. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world? I mean, he's not mincing words. Friendship with the world is what? hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Right? So Christians are to be resolutely uncool. The main reason for that uncoolness is what is stated by the Apostle Paul. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? Everybody looks at Christianity and it's like, oh man, what fools. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, those who are chosen, those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so people who will not embrace the foolishness of the cross, the uncoolness of, Christi- of Christianity, because it, because it diminishes every man down to a sinful, dead, dependent drop in the bucket. So those who will not embrace the uncoolness of the Christian faith will not endure persecution. And to avoid persecution, one just has to live, not as a stranger and alien, but just as a worldling. It's strange, isn't it, that so many Christians today would be taken down, not by physical persecution, but by a different method of the devil. The relentless pressure to be cool. The relentless pressure to be liked. The relentless pressure to be respected by a world that's hostile toward God. That's what takes down our covenant children. The relentless pressure to be respected by to, to be respected by some 13-year-old somewhere. That's crazy. It's a particularly potent form of persecution, isn't it? That relentless pressure to be cool. To never be unaware of the world's latest fashion. The Christian faith is to embrace everything the world thinks to be the curses of being uncool. Right? Weakness. Suffering. Depending on God. Deadness. So the Apostle Peter is reminding these Christians who are in the crucible of suffering that they mustn't avoid that suffering by embracing cool or embracing the ways of the world. No, they are chosen ones. Chosen ones. And those suffering, they're precious to the Lord. It's hard, isn't it, for us to remember that simple truth that we are chosen ones when we are suffering. It's really hard to remember that when we're suffering. We read those psalms that that question God, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And wonder if God has any regard for us when we suffer. And so right from the start, the Apostle Peter encourages these suffering Christians by reminding them of their election. Chosen. And not just chosen. It says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So notice how our passage goes. Look at these few verses if you have your Bibles open. We're told that these exiles are chosen, then it follows with a number of prepositional phrases defining that choosing. Literally, our passage reads, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit, into obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. All of those prepositional phrases describe those who are being chosen. They are chosen kata, according to the authority of the Father. They are chosen en, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And they are chosen ice, into the result, the purpose of their 
being chosen is obedience and the sprinkled blood of Christ. We're chosen according to the authority of the Father, the unbegotten one, the first person in the Trinity. We're chosen by means of the work of the Spirit, the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, the third person of the Trinity. And we're chosen so that we might obey Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, and to be sprinkled with his cleansing blood, just like the priests of the temple used to sprinkle blood everywhere, and it was to purify people and altars and the temple. We're chosen according to the will of the Father by means of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. And that's a good summary of election. That's a good summary of the triune work of election, isn't it? First thing I'd say about that is what glory in the the very fact that the three persons of the Trinity are involved in your election, being involved, they're, they're all involved in your salvation. It's not merely the Son of God who loves us, while the despotic Father keeps his transcendent distance and the amorphous spirit and mysterious spirit does things we just can't explain. Um, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all work for our salvation and all work for our redemption, if indeed God has worked in you. It's the authority of the Father that leads to your election. It's the enlivening work of the Holy Spirit by which you are elected, and it is the glory of the Son as evidenced by the power of his blood and the intensity of your obedience for which you were elected. So now, dear brothers and sisters, when the pressure of persecution, whether that be prison or physical punishment or the powerful pressure to just be cool, bears down on you, it's important for you to remember that the triune God, all three persons, are committed to your care. They're committed to your salvation, right? God, who covenanted with himself before the very foundation of the world, has your back. The Father's authority is on you. The Spirit's regenerating power is in you, and the Son's purifying blood washes you so that you may enjoy him through your obedience. Now, how is it that Obedience is something that we are to enjoy. Well, you have been chosen for this purpose that you might obey him. You've been chosen so that you might obey him. And scripture nowhere states that obedience is not pleasant for the moment, but yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. No, scripture says that of discipline. Right? It says that of discipline from God. That is not pleasant, but it yields fruit. But obedience to God, that is what the Christian wants, right? Rather than being a worldling that obeys the world's rules for coolness, the Christian wants to obey Jesus. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. And John 14 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We have to, we have to wrap our brains around this concept. We don't obey Jesus because it's our attempt to save ourselves. Anybody who believes that is, is missed Scripture. That was the method of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees get Jesus, the word of God's harshest rebukes. They thought that because they tithed their mint, dill, and cumin, that God was, was obligated to usher them into heaven. No, our obedience is the fruit of our election by God, and it is the expression of our love for God. And it's the expression of the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Obedience is love to God, and that is birthed by the love he had for us before we loved him. Obedience is our commitment to God and his ways. Obedience is our embracing of the uncool. You've been chosen by God worked on by the Spirit, cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ so that you may obey the Word. And that obedience will be your spiritual sacrifice. That message really is the content of the whole of chapter 2 in Peter's letter. And coming to him as to living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because... They are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers then, and this is where obedience comes in, to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now do you see the tie there between obedience and election? and obedience in bringing glory to God. There's a deep, inevitable tie between God's election and obedience. The latter obedience flows from the former election. Calvin, in his commentary on these verses, puts it this way. He says, Let us now state the substance of the whole, which is that our salvation flows from the gratuitous election of God but that it is to be ascertained by the experience of faith because he sanctifies us by his spirit 
And then that there are two effects or ends of our calling, even renewal into obedience and ablution by the blood of Christ. And further, that both are the work of the Holy Spirit. We hence conclude that election is not to be separated from calling, nor the gratuitous righteousness of faith from newness of life. Right? In other words, taking that last phrase, we mustn't separate the gratuitous righteousness of faith, the fact that God graciously, without us earning it, or us doing anything on our part, grants to us the righteousness of faith, that is combined with the newness of life, the way we live our lives, uh, and that means our obedience. So now here's where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? Our passage creates a link between God's election and our obedience. But you either don't ever think about the fact that God's work always results in newness of life or obedience, or you fall into a different category. You have no joy in obeying God. You have no joy in obeying God. God's rules seem to you to be set against your pleasure. God's rules, God's law, we went through it twice this morning, thankfully. We, 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 uh, we, we sang it and we heard it read. But you just have no joy in it. There's no joy in, in, in your obedience to God. It, it is, it is um, you have to force yourself to do it. Um, some don't think about obedience at all, right? Some just live their Christian life thinking happy thoughts about God and how God is so pleased with them and, and they believe that they don't sin very much and they don't really have anything to repent of and I'm sorry, but that's just not my experience of the Christian faith. It's not the experience that the Apostle Paul lays out in Romans 7 either. Right, But I think it's more likely that we who want to obey God find obeying God odious. In one sense, the whole of Peter's letter is going to address that question. It stinks to suffer. It stinks to obey. And what am I going to do? Why do we... Why do we have a hard time finding joy in obeying God's law? Why as Christians in, in which the Holy Spirit resides, who, is, who has transferred us out of darkness and into light, who has, who has changed the inner man, right? why do we find it so hard? Why do we find ourselves more often than not lacking motivation to pursue our holiness? Why do we not live for God? Why, do, why are we so double-minded and unstable in our lives? Why do we so often serve our flesh and ourselves and carry very little about what God has commanded us to do in His Word? I think the picture that is painted of an old church, the church in Pergamum, is an answer to the spiritual malaise that we as a church and each of us individually are experiencing. In the book of Revelation, we read this indictment against the church in Pergamum. I know your deeds and listen to this and how it expresses your experience. 
I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Right? That's all good stuff. That's, that's good stuff. You're persevering, you're not growing weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. I have this against you, Jesus says to this church, that you have left your first love. I mean, without love, you apparently then can, without loving Christ, you apparently can do good deeds, you can toil, you can even persevere in those deeds, you can uh, hate evil things, right? You can, you can put to test false apostles and, and point out that they're not real apostles, right? You can have spiritual discernment, Right, and you can, um, and you can not grow weary, and yet you can leave your first love. Therefore, it says, "Remember where from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. It's not like he says, "Repent and get your heart right." It says, "Repent and do works." Repent and do deeds. Do the deeds you did at first. You used to obey me because you loved me. Your obedience sprang from a heart that was enlivened by the Spirit. And you loved me and you loved to do and to be like the Father. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who is near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Right? They had all kinds of discernment. They didn't have love for Jesus. The discernment allowed them to persevere on a certain level, but their love grieved Jesus. Note that this church had deeds, toil, perseverance, discernment, but what they lack is love. And note that the solution is said by the Spirit is to repent and do the deeds you used to do. Repent and obey. Their desire to live in holiness diminished because their love for God diminished. And when our love for God grows cold, our desire for holiness diminishes. That's the very reason the Apostle Peter leads with the election of God. Right? God's grace, His choice of you as His, should so inflame your love for Him that obedience to His word would be the very opposite of a cosmic bummer. Right? He's chosen you before the foundation of the world. And obedience to him is a bummer. Obedience should be your joy. Right? We get to glorify and honor and praise the one who elected us, who made us, who redeemed us, who loves us with an undying love. And that should lead us to be saying, I want to be holy as he is holy. He is is cool. Look what he has done for us. 
all of his works are glorious. All of what he has done has been for my benefit. All of it. So knowing of your election, being assured of your election, being fully convinced of God's eternal love for you will result in joyful obedience, right? And you will be grieved deeply as the apostle Peter was when you forget that election and sin against God. You will feel deeply that you are trampling on someone who has always and only loved you. And that's a terrible feeling. In the first chapter of his second letter, there is a passage that for many of you has been depressing. But it makes the point I've been bringing out of our passage this morning. It's depressing to you because it exhorts you to increase in your obedience. But note where it ends. This is what what Peter says in in the first chapter of his second letter. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Ugh. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Ugh. And in your knowledge, self-control. Ugh. And in your self-control, perseverance. Ugh. And in your perseverance, godliness. Ugh. And in your pr- godliness, brotherly kindness. Ugh. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Ugh. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make certain about your election. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Do you see the Spirit through the Apostle Peter connects our election with our obedience? Right. So if obedience seems like such a drag to you, if being holy like God the Father is holy seems like such a drag Take what Peter says in that second letter and get busy. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Don't get busy doing your works yet. Get busy understanding that you're called and chosen by God. I think this is a particularly hard thing for covenant children. They think holiness is a drag. And if they don't yet, your children are just young. Okay? Your children, your covenant children, as they grow in the church, will think holiness is a drag. They have been disciplined continually by their parents to conform to God's word, and they begin to resent holiness. Right? They see holiness as a battering ram that their parents have used against them from an er- as early as they can remember. There's nothing pleasant in their thoughts about that. And they begin to hate God's standard. They begin to hate God, yes, covenant children. They begin to hate God's standard 
They begin to hate God's law. They begin to despise discipline. And parents have to be, be very careful not to continually cast the pursuit of holiness as a negative thing. Right? Covenant children see the pursuit of holiness as a set of shackles. Right? And not as a path to freedom and life and love of God. Now, they also don't understand fully the danger and destructiveness of sin. They don't understand the dangers of the bondage that they're pursuing if they're pursuing bondage outside of bondage to the word. They've never been outside the church. They've never been outside the church and her standards. And so parents, we have to be reminded to present the pursuit of holiness as a joy, right? As an absolute positive, as the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and and be ruled by the Word of God. Outside of this rule, outside of the rule of the Word of God, there is only self-government and man-made religion which has no power. But covenant children want to give that man-made power a try. Because all they've had is the word of God beating them down. I'm not telling you not to beat down your children with the word of God. Strike them with the rod, they will not die. Right? That's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is make sure you push them to make sh- to to examine themselves to make sure that their calling and election is sure, right? And then out of that calling and election that they enjoy, that that benevolence that God has given to them will flow all kinds of obedience to him. One of the ways that we can teach our children that holiness is wonderful is by continually reminding them that holiness is nothing less than the wonderful perfection of God's character. It's not a list of rules. It's the perfection of God's character. It's who He is. Later in this first, this first chapter, the Apostle Peter reminds of this. You shall be holy for I am holy. Right? We also must do the work of making sure our calling and election, making sure of it. How do we become more certain of God's choosing us? How do we do that? Or how do we help our children realize that? Do you believe the promises of God's word? Do you believe what scripture says? Right? Do you, do you see evidence, not perfection? Not in a a, a string of years where you haven't broken a commandment, but do you see evidence of God working in your heart, in your mind, and in your soul? And does the Spirit inwardly testify to you that you are a child of God? Does the Spirit say to you, you're my child? And so, dear brothers and sisters, just stop and think about this question. Am I a child of God? Do the work of contemplating that. Covenant children, ask your parents to help you work through that. Am I a child of God? Believe the word, bear fruit for him, trust the Spirit's testimony, and resist the devil who will only and always try to get you to doubt that you are a child of God and who will only and always try to get you to despise God's character 
and who will only and always try to get you to find freedom in disobedience rather than in obedience. And then, strangely enough, our assurance will then grow when we obey the Lord. Right? Our knowledge of election leads us to thankful obedience, and then our thankful obedience leads us to more assurance of our calling. And so believe the word. Examine yourself for fruit from your faith and trust the Spirit's testimony. And then know at the end of the day that to be holy is to be like the God who has chosen you before the foundation of the world. That is wonderfully amazing opportunity, isn't it? Holiness, to be like Almighty God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would not be infatuated with the world, that we would not cast longing eyes at the, the goods of the world and the fads and the fashion and the, the changing, the ever-changing ethics. Father, and the, in the, the libertarian insanity and the, the, Father, just the way that, that everything is the opposite of your character. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so, Father, I pray that we, as your chosen children, would remember each day of our lives that we are your chosen children and that following out of that election, we would stand tall and we would stand firm against the schemes of the devil, that we would, that we would not uh, cave to the temptations and give in to the sins which so easily entangle us, but that we would run the race that is set before us. Father, I pray that, that you would cause our covenant children not to be embittered against your law, but that they would see it as a lens through which they can know you and your glory. Father, give us all the desire to be like Christ, to walk as Christ walked, to honor the things that Christ honored. Father, to, to go to you in prayer by himself and Father, may we do the same thing. Father, may we, may we love obedience. May we delight in your law. May we, through all those means, merely be expressing the, the depth of our love for you and your character.